This episode was recorded during the SAG After Strike. As fans and content creators, we stand in solidarity with the creatives currently on strike. There's power in a union. I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Thief. Thief. You're my thief. <laughs> and we are back in the TARDIS discussing the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. We've reached the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith. As of this recording, and and probably for the rest of the series' existence, the youngest actor to ever play the Doctor. Uh, The previous youngest actor was Peter Davison, who was 29 years old when he started filming the show. Matt Smith was 26. So unless we get a teenage Doctor, I don't think that's changing anytime soon. But uh, that 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 did lead to some jokes for a while during that era where people were kind of joking that the doctor got younger after each regeneration. So they were so there were some people who were kind of jokingly expecting a baby to be the doctor. I don't know if you were one of those people or not. Well, the thing is, is that Matt Smith's casting taught me a lesson. Mm. It is. There's something visceral about the point in your life when the doctor is younger than you. And Matt Smith was that point for us. Mm -hmm. Okay. David Tennant is, you know, less than 10 years older than us. Um, and kind of the rest of the doctors, because of our age and everything, you know, they were always old men, even the younger one, you know, even Peter Davison, like, you know, that's like the, the seventies and stuff, you know, like we weren't even born when Peter Davison was the doctor, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's always been like, these are it's okay for them to be the doctor because they're, they're older than us, you know? Um, and even like David Tennant was the young sexy doctor, but he was still like a few years older than us. Mm -hmm. So it seemed kind of okay. And then they were like, here's Matt Smith. And you're like, he looks rather young. And they're like, he's younger than you. And you're like, Oh, I can feel myself crumbling into dust now. No, no, no. A Time Lord is not supposed to be younger than me. That's no, that's that's crossing a line at that point. <laughs> like, I mean, he's <laughs> 900 years old. <laughs> yeah, like, no, 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 no. I, I get I get that that the doctor can be anything, but the doctor cannot be younger than me. That is a line. <laughs> so I was kind of. I was kind of angry at the casting of Matt Smith at first, 
I was like, no, no, no. This this fetus cannot be the doctor. Your own mortality. <laughs> your own mortality. Looking back at you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, no, no, no. You cannot. You cannot be the doctor because you are younger than me. I mean, he's not that much younger than us. Mm-hmm. You know, a few years. But it's it's not. It's a noticeable difference. You know, it's like he's literally like a year younger than us. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, he's younger than us. <laughs> 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 we, which is annoying. It's like it's like so hilariously pissed me off with the fact of like the doctor can be my exact same age that's legit the doctor being a year younger than me crossing the line <laughs> it makes me angry <laughs> it's, there's there's something about that that just made me so annoyed um but yeah, it it was kind of funny that that was my reaction. <laughs> I wanted to hate Matt Smith so much, but of course I didn't because he he's a wonderful doctor and a wonderful actor, and um, it 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 ended up working out fine. But when he got cast, I was like, "This is a thing up with which I shall not put," you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, and and. It, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the doctor being, but I will give Matt Smith this, and I've said this before, Matt Smith perfectly embodied the old man in a young man's body type of character for the doctor. And we've talked about this with other doctors, but Matt Smith perfectly, you know, for someone so young to play the, you know, to have that old look in his eyes, to you know, have this this heft of 900 years of life, but still have that young chipper attitude when it needs to come out. It's 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 it showed so much that, he you know, he showed that he's such a great actor. And that's probably why he's still getting work now. And really, the reason he hasn't come back for anything is because he's freaking busy. Yeah, I mean, he is really good on House of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that I like that he went kind of back to the the more quirky dress and the, you know. Uh, he said he based a lot of his look and his mannerisms on Patrick Troughton. And you can kind of see it. if you ever see. I mean, we've we've seen Troughton in in episode, you know, the the talking with the hands kind of way that Troughton would do it. The and it kind of reflects that in in Matt Smith's performance. Yeah, and he's got the you know, he doesn't quite dress the way you would expect someone that looks that age to dress. The tweed outfit, the as he said, he dressed like a college professor. Well, the thing is, it's not even college professors dress like that anymore. You know, it's like 
Matt Smith's words, not mine. He said he. Well, yeah, he, but I mean, it's it's a college professor from a different era, even. Yeah. So it's not even like a modern college professor that he's just too young to be that sort of, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like a completely different era that has passed by, you know. A kid dressed as his grandpa. Yeah, and the thing is, is that um, there's the joke about when the Fez came up mm-hmm. that apparently Stephen Moffat said, I'm going to give Matt a Fez. And somebody else said, you can't give Matt a Fez. He's he's going to want to wear it in every episode. And Stephen Moffat said, no, 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 I've got a plan. I'm going to give him a fez and then immediately destroy the fez so that he can't wear it. Like, And that became a running gag of the doctor wearing various hats and getting them instantly destroyed. Like the fez and then there was the, the cowboy hat when he went to Utah that's instantly shot off by a river. Yeah. Uh, but Matt Smith, as we've talked before, you know, there were the auditions. Matt Smith was not the the, the first choice. There's been a, there were a lot of other people who were considered to be the 11th Doctor. David Morrissey was one of them. And uh, Doctor Who fans will know that he was in the 2008 Christmas special, The Next Doctor, with David Tennant. And there were people who were actually legit thought that this guy was going to be the next Doctor. when Because the episode was called The Next Doctor. So, but so there was consideration to bring Morrissey back to legitimately be the 11th Doctor, which I would not have been against. But then we wouldn't have gotten what we got with Matt Smith. Russell Tovey was also considered. Uh, He's been he was already in a previous Doctor Who episode. Alonzi, Alonzo. Uh, yeah, was considered to be the the 11th Doctor as well. So it was clear they were kind of going for a more younger looking man for the 11th Doctor. Another person that was considered for the 11th Doctor, Peter Capaldi. But apparently he was unavailable. Maybe he will be available eventually. Yeah, I mean, we could we could always come back to that. Well, put a pin in Peter Cabaldi. We'll come back to him eventually. <laughs> so again, it's there was a lot. There was a lot of great people that were considered for the Eleventh Doctor, especially when you have to follow up David Tennant, who really revitalized the series and became so popular as the Doctor to the point where people were straight up refusing to watch the show anymore when it was announced that he was leaving. Like, he's the only doctor. He's the real doctor. He's my doctor. No one else will ever be the doctor. And it's that never-ending cycle of the doctor in that, who's this new person? I hate him. He's not my doctor. Oh, he's really good. Oh, my God, how great he is. Please don't ever leave. I can't believe he's leaving. Who's this new guy? He can't replace the doctor. I honestly think that. It really mostly happens with. Those who get. Into the show. 
with the new iteration? Because I remember when Dave, when it was announced that David Tennant was leaving, and we've talked about how you were a big David Tennant fan at the time, and like you kind of, I mean, not to get personal, but you were kind of saying that, you know, you were kind of sad over it, and you were hoping that he was going to like outlast Tom Baker as a doctor, if I remember correctly. Well, I mean, I I had hoped he would go on a little bit more, but. I also I knew the history of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't like I was like, oh, he's going to be in the part forever. I had kind of hoped he would break the record mm. because that would have been a, a cool thing. Mm-hmm. But. It was, you know, he's a good actor and he deserved to do whatever parts he wanted. And. He was like, yeah, okay, I think I, I think I'm done with this, and I want to go on and do other things. And I was like, okay, I'm sad about that, but I respect it. And there's going to be another doctor. It's not like they're canceling the show. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of how I feel every time there's a a new doctor like i was really surprised that christopher eccleston only did the one series because that was like very shocking i think to everybody and 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 we and we had talked about his reasons for leaving and yeah you know i was i still respect his reasons for 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 leaving i get it but yeah i would have you know the alternate universe where everything lined up correctly and christopher eccleston did five seasons or whatever you know that's you know i would love to have seen that universe and from what we get it was it was good but yeah i would have loved to see eccleston continue but his reasons for leaving are his own and i respect that but i was i knew enough even though i was not a regular watcher until the reboot i knew enough about the history of the series to know like that's just how it is Mm -hmm. So even though at the time David Tennant was my favorite of the doctors I'd seen, and at that point I had gone back and watched more of the classic, I it was still like, okay, but this is just how the show is, mm-hmm. you know. So I wasn't like, yeah, I'm never gonna watch the show again because you knew more David Tennant, you know. I'm like, he'll probably show up again for like a crossover, you know the seven doctors or, you know, whatever the hell they're going to do, or, you know, like, or, I just kind of figured that would happen. Oh, you know, come back as a completely new regeneration. That I did not see coming. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff I see coming. That was not one of the things on my bingo card. I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, but yeah, so I, I was never in that camp and I was just the people who were like that. I was like, Oh, is this your first ride in the TARDIS? You know, because mm-hmm. I just figured that that was that was probably what was going on there. People who joined up with David Tennant as the doctor and just didn't really understand what was going on. But it always happens. I mean, when when Tennant left, we went through this. When Matt Smith left, we went through this. When Capaldi left, we went through this. I, I Ironically, not when we went with 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 uh, Whitaker, but that's a discussion for another day. 
Yeah. And some people do that with the companions, too. Like, when Rose, you know, left, they were like, there's never going to be They We're so in love. I can't bear to see anybody else with the, the you know, it's like, shut up. I was with that way with Donna, but mostly because of how she was written out. Yeah. Here's hoping that she gets done better in the new specials. And in a way, I kind of felt that way with the next person we're going to be talking about, Karen Gilly and Amy Pond. But she's done pretty well for herself since. I mean, has she? I haven't really heard anything about her. I, mean, I heard she. I heard she was. She was in some reboot of Jumanji. Uh, I don't know. I've never seen it. Yeah, I don't know. I hope she gets some work. She's a pretty good actress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even keep that one going. <laughs> Nebula is one of my favorite characters, man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Karen Gillan just shows so much. Again what you know doctor who was that step in the door for her and now she's you know one of the most in-demand actresses in hollywood although it, it is kind of it is kind of um disappointing in me that you know karen gillen gets all of these big name roles in films and stuff and matt smith gets like secondary roles in films and television I kind of want to see Matt Smith in the lead in a film. Well, I mean, like I said, he was so good in House of the Dragon. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was such a badass part. And he he was like the best part of that show. So... No, no complaints there. Every time he was on camera, I was like, I am having fun now. The rest of the show was kind of meh, but anytime Matt Smith walked on screen, you were like, all right, good time. The character of Amy Pond was not supposed to be Scottish originally. And when Carrie Gillen auditioned for the role, she did, she auditioned without her Scottish accent. She did a regular uh, London accent, which I don't I would I don't think I've ever heard her do a London accent. I would you know I unless she did it on that TV show she was on, but I didn't see it. But um, so she auditioned with a London accent, and they brought her back, and they found out that she was from from Scotland, and they had her do the the second audition with a Scottish accent. And now Amy Pond is Scottish. I just happens to live in London. I mean, it works so well. Yeah. And the red hair. <laughs> it's it just a, it's a it's a it's a great combination. So let's kind of pick up where we did leave off. And it's not much at this point. But yes, uh, the 10th Doctor. Had a few more adventures after leaving Donna Noble. Uh, would regenerate in his final episode, facing his facing off against the Master once again. Here we get Matt Smith, the new Doctor, and he lands somewhere in the 1980s with a little girl named Amelia Pond. 
and then says he's going to take her across time and space. She packs a bag and she's about to go. The doctor leaves in the TARDIS saying he'll be right back. 20 years later, he finally shows up after Amy has had these dreams and these wild hallucinations of a raggedy doctor. She's gone to therapy. She's gone to all of these things. The doctor doesn't always leave the people he encounters in the best shape. Yeah. So after re-encountering Amy now, now as an adult, they have decided, you know, he's decided he's going to actually honor that promise and take her across all of time and space. While she was, well, uh, the day before she was to get married to her boyfriend, Rory Williams, played by the amazing Arthur Darville. And the relationship between the Doctor and Amy is really interesting because, like, she was all in on this in multiple ways. It was like, here's this man from space, whisks me off my feet in his magical time machine, Oh, he wants one thing. I'm getting married tomorrow. What's one fling before you get married? Which at the start kind of turns some people off of the character in a way that she's just another Rose. How Rose was a Rose so quick to leave to leave Mickey behind and just shack up with the doctor and fall in love with him and all of that. A lot of people said, oh, and here's this again. But I'm glad that they got rid of that pretty early within the first half of the of that season. Before she's, you know, I'm in love with Rory. Rory's my man. Uh, this is my true love. Even getting Rory to travel in the TARDIS with them. And then he dies. The first of many deaths for, for poor Rory. Not only does he die, but he is also erased from existence. That final scene where she's just breaking down and like not only does she has she lost the love of her life, but now he's erased from existence. She's going to forget the man she loves. And try as he might, the doctor isn't able to keep the memory there, isn't able to keep her memory of Rory because the t- her personal timeline has changed. And I don't know how you felt when that episode first aired. I it was that- heartbreaking, but the thing is, is I don't think that particular episode hit as much as the episode we're going to talk about. Mm. Because I think the aftermath was better handled than the initial. Mm. And I only mentioned that, one, because, yeah, we are dealing with the aftermath of that episode. This episode takes place immediately after that. But also, I don't know if that's ever, I don't think that's ever happened in Doctor Who before, where a companion's personal history is altered on that level. In expanded media, yes. In expanded media, we've had companions who've had their backstories changed, even to the point where they no longer exist. But to have a in the show, a companion have their personal history changed in such a way that 
it is that devastating. Here is this person who uh, you have known, and we we would find this out later, that these two have known each other their entire lives. They were best friends growing up that ended up falling in love and getting married. So for someone who was such a big and important part of her life now no longer exists, it is a devastating moment. And again, we are getting into the the, the aftermath here. Usually for these type of episodes, we do a full serial or a two-parter. For this episode of our Doctor Who retrospective, we are doing two separate one-part stories because these are the two best stories of the 11th Doctor era. Yeah, easily. Easily. So let's pick up the story here in Vincent and the Doctor. As I said, Rory just died. Rory just got erased from existence. And the Doctor has trying to ease the pain. Pain that Amy doesn't even know that she has. And that is the ultimate. I mean... That is another part of this puzzle is that Amy is going through mourning, but she doesn't know why. Something, you know, and the doctor is trying to comfort Amy, taking her to wherever she wants to go. This whole tour that had that's happened between these two episodes that Amy picks up that Amy knows something's up. Why are you doing this? Why are we here? Why have we gone on these tours of places that I've always wanted to go? What's up? And the doctor cannot tell her. Because he. We would find this out in later episode, in later series, later doctors. That a. Um, I'll bring it up now. Screw it. Uh, Clara. When Clara lost Danny, she lost her mind. She just in in she's lost her mind in grief. To the point where she is willing to go back on everything the doctor stands for to go back in time and save her boyfriend from dying. And in that moment, if Amy were to be no, Amy were to be made aware that, hey, you had a boyfriend that was your best friend growing up. He has now been erased from existence. He doesn't want to put that idea in Amy's head. So he kind of distracts her by taking on all of these great adventures, these great places she's always wanted to go. But it, Amy's starting to get suspicious. So I do like that moment. Amy's at least aware that something's going on that's that's not exactly on the up and up. And the doctor's trying very, very terribly to kind of cover it up. So here we are with Vincent and the doctor where the, where Amy is visiting the, the museum and visiting the gallery of, uh, we're American. So we technically say Vincent van Gogh, but you have the other pronunciation of Vincent van Gogh. Uh, you're go with whatever pronunciation you want to go with. But since we are lowly Americans, we can go with van Gogh. I guess. So Vincent Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, technically the way they do it on the show is the more correct pronunciation and how he would have said his name. But, you know, we're Americans. We screw things up all the time. Whatever. 
Stay out of America, doctor. Stay out of America. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, they're at the museum. They're looking at the Van Gogh, Van Gogh exhibition. And they, you know, apparently Amy is a huge fan of, 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 of his art and has wanted to see this exhibition for so long. As they are in the museum, the doctor notices something in one of uh, Van Gogh's Van Gogh's paintings that shouldn't be there. That hasn't been there in the when the last time he's seen that work anyway. Some sort of creature, some sort of alien monster that he needs to figure this out. What, when did he paint this picture? Where did he paint this picture? We need to figure out what this creature is and how it ended up in this piece of artwork. So this move, this episode is is a historical, and I do love it. It's probably one of the best historicals that Doctor Who has ever done. And also, uh, shout out to uncredited Bill Nye here. Hmm. Because he is the museum curator that gives the doctor the information he needs to go back and uh, find the the painting or to find Vincent at the right time when he is working on this painting. The doctor does show some gratitude to the curator. Maybe the doctor will become a curator one day. Yeah, might be a good job for him. When he when he saved the world when he saved the universe already and retires. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've gone. They go back in time to Vincent before he's painted this picture, trying to figure out what's going on. But I like that we get the the context we need. That if you don't know anything about. Vincent's history. The way we think of him now is, of course, as this great lauded painter. But Bill Nye gives us the quick summation that, of course, he he wasn't respected in his own time. You know, he was the the drunk and the madman and. No one would buy his paintings. He only ever sold one during his lifetime. It was only later after his death that anyone saw value in his work. He never lived to see that. Yeah, the the moment where we see him walking out of the pub trying to pay for a drink with a painting and the the host just saying, yeah, your artwork is is worthless. It's not worth the the paint and canvas it's made out of, which you know it's it's it it is a nice reflection of any artist that there. I mean, we as you said, we think of these great artists, these great musicians throughout history as they must have been lauded. They must have, you know, they must have sold so much artwork. They must have played in front of sold out arenas all over the world. And it's like, no, nobody knew who they were. Nobody cared who they were. Until after their passing and then afterwards, the next generation looked at their work and say, hey, there's this is great. Why did no one ever see the greatness in this? And see that in, in, in Vincent here, who who is a struggling artist who is just trying to 
to make a living being an artist and no one really gives a damn. And at the same time, you know, he, he you know, the doctor even uh, attempts to buy one of his paintings saying, I'll buy your the painting you have in your hand and then you can use the money to pay for your drink. And he even says, no one buys my paintings. You must not be from around here if you're even willing to buy one of my paintings. Dr. and Amy even hinting that his art is great or his art is would be worth something brings up suspicion in, in Vincent. How do you know this? Or you must be more crazy than I am. We we get our first bit of the clash when they're looking for Vincent and, you know, you've got the kind of the doctor and Amy being these kind of drooling fans. And then you've got the people who work at the, the pub who are like, oh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> we can't stand him. He never pays his bills. He's always trying to give us paintings and, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And you see the, the doctor and Amy being like, he tries to give you paintings, you know, like, um, because of course these people have no concept of what that they could have or what their, you know, children, grandchildren, whatever could, could have. Even Vincent doesn't even know this. As we find out later, he's trying to describe this, this creature he sees and he just smears white paint over one of his paintings to draw the creature and the doctor is like, what are you doing? Yeah. And the thing is, is that that is actually historically accurate. That there are so many things where they've discovered that there are multiple paintings from a lot of these artists where they would go like, yeah, that one's not really very good. And they would just, you know, paint a layer over it and just paint because they couldn't afford to go buy a fresh canvas. I was going to say that canvas is expensive. <laughs> yeah. And so the fact that he's. We've got the ability now. That there's special type of x-rays and stuff that art historians can use that will not damage the layers of paint. Um, and they've discovered that when you use them on a lot of these canvases from these old masters, that there's actually one or maybe multiple layers of paintings. I like that, that they just use that as a, a plot point that the doctor freaks out like no you know but it it is you know historically accurate to just the way that vincent would have worked you know um i love the painstaking bit that they went through to recreate his room mm. because we do have the portraits of his room that he did and bravo to the set designers for putting together that room. Because when I first saw the, the episode 
I was like, oh, oh, my God. You know, I was exactly Amy in that moment when she walks into the room. and She's like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> because he did paint, you know, paintings of his of his room. Um, and so they used those paintings to, you know, recreate the space. And I was like, oh, man, that's such good detail work. I just adored that. Um, much like Amy, like he he is one of my favorite artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the open flirtation between the two. Like, yeah, I really you know. I really do like that where he's like, and I love that the joke about them both being portrayed by Scottish actors, but of course Vincent not being from scotland of course you know like and so he's he's like you know oh you know are are you from the same place i am and she's like no and the daughter's like yes she is (laughs) tardis translation matrix yeah but the you know I, like it starts with like he's at the you know they're at the they're at the pub and he's like the only reason he really goes with the doctor in general is like your friend's cute. <laughs> yeah, and I love Amy, you know, because the doctor offers to buy him a drink and he's like, I pay for my own drinks and nobody buys my paintings and rah, 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 rah. and then um, a- Amy's just like, ugh, you know shut up men and then she's like i'm gonna buy a bottle of wine and then i'm gonna share it with whoever i want and everybody's like all right hot chick you know like (laughs) whatever you say and you know just the flirtation between the two of them but also vincent a man that has had so much pain in his life through his own either his own life experiences or his own uh, his own mental illness can see the pain in Amy. He knows that Amy is going through things, even if Amy doesn't know it herself. As he says, if Amy Pond can press on through all the pain in her, I can press on through all the pain in my and me. And Amy, like, what are you talking about? I'm I'm not going through any pain. Yeah, why are you crying? And Amy is like, "What? Wait, why am I crying? Why am I going through all of this this emotion?" And it's a nice callback to the previous episode, but also Amy, there is that piece of her that knows something's missing. She knows, but she doesn't know what it is. She knows that she's sad. She doesn't know why. She knows that someone is not there who should be there, doesn't know why. Even Amy doing a double take when 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 the doctor instinctively refers to Vincent as Rory. Because he was so, you know, like, it's like, Amy, Rory, run. Like, who's Rory? I mean, Vincent, run. (laughs) So it's like it's 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 a beautiful moment there where. Someone who's had so much pain in his life can see the pain in others. We've we got to talk about who who wrote this episode. Go ahead. Because I did not realize he wrote this episode until the rewatch. Richard Curtis, if you don't know. Is. 
one of the most successful screenwriters in Britain. He wrote Love Actually. He wrote the Bridget Jones movies. He wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, he also um, wrote uh, for Black Adder. He wrote for Mr. Bean. He wrote for The Vicar of Dibley. Guy has cred, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but... I I never realized that he wrote this episode. Um, the the way he treats this, and you can see it in a lot of his his work. You know, he is always very sensitive towards grief and depression. I I don't know his own background, but it comes through a lot in his various work. The way he treats it in this, I think, is one of the best portrayals of the sort of mental illness that Vincent dealt with. Because we've we've got the, you know, we've got the kind of, I don't even know if you'd call it the A storyline. It kind of seems like the monster of the week is kind of like the. B or C storyline in this. Um, You you, you don't even need the monster of the week, but you kind of have to because Doctor Who is a sci-fi show. Well, it's the way to get the doctor there. Like, why do we go visit Vincent? It's like, oh, he's in trouble because there's a monster in the painting. The monster is like tertiary to so many other things in this plot. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is, is like, we see part of Vincent's, you know, mental illness. And we don't really know what, like, Vincent would be diagnosed with in the modern day, like, DSM. Mm -hmm. A lot of people speculate it was probably something like bipolar, given what we have about the various ways he acted it does seem to line up with what we would think of as bipolar today but of course we don't know for sure because you know things like that are our ideas have changed and everything you know um they portray it much like bipolar in the episode he talks about having episodes for weeks or months on end and you know you you see his his mood swings you see depression you see mania you see um various uh, bits like that that they are almost certainly trying to portray something akin to bipolar so i think that's what the episode um, was trying to go through and I think that's what most people believe was probably uh, going on with him possible I mean we again the the mood swings in the episodes and Vincent talking about seeing various doctors almost not even wanting to talk to our doctor because hey he's he's talked to so many doctors as it is he doesn't want to see anymore 
Yeah, in in real life, Vincent was in and out of psychiatric hospitals quite a lot. Um, if you don't know the um, Starry Night, you know, which of course is his most famous painting, was the view from his room at a psychiatric hospital. So, you know, that's the context for that painting. I will give the set designers a lot of credit for replicating Vince's Vincent's art style. Because the art style of the alien is very much in that Van Gogh style. Even um we are skipping ahead, even when he when we see the return of Vincent when he paint, paints the famous TARDIS explosion painting. It's very much in his style. And man, that's so many people bought that that poster. I don't know if you have that one or not. Um, I had the T-shirt. I have a wallet. I have socks. I have I have so much exploding TARDIS stuff. It's one of my favorite things. But yeah, so I, I, I give the set designers so much credit for replicating that style so faithfully. Yeah, um, but, you know, g- going back to it is that, you know, again, skipping ahead, kind of the the point of what I consider to be the main plot of the episode is that Amy is so sure that if they can prove to Vincent that his art will mean something someday that they can save him because you know Vincent did take his own life at Mon- a, a sadly young age months after they go back and see him yeah and the the thing is is that you know It is the most beautiful scene in the episode where they take Vincent back to the museum and they ask Bill Nye to explain the impact that Vincent had on art and humanity. And you see, and Tony Curran plays that scene in one of the most amazing ways I mean, he says nothing during that scene. It's all the music. Really, a yeah. lot of it. A lot of it is the music that they're using for that scene as he's looking around and he's seeing all of these people admire his work, buying replicas of his artwork. And this man calling him the greatest artist who ever lived. Yeah, that that song is is called Chances. It's by a band called Athlete. Um and it's it's beautiful in that context um but yeah i mean just the the look on vincent's face and the way his eyes start tearing up and you know you can tell that he is so overwhelmed with the fact i mean he talks throughout the episode about the fact that the villagers shout at him the kids throw rocks at him we see everyone in town calling his artwork ugly. And here he is taken to a museum 
that is dedicated, you know, a, an entire wing dedicated to his work with um, a man, a doctor, <laughs> calling his work and and himself, you know, one of the greatest of all time. And you can see it just overwhelming him. And it's one of the best bits of acting in modern Doctor Who. It's it's definitely why it's it's probably the best episode of Eleventh Doctor run. You know he's su- he's in such a happy manic state when they bring him back. Of I mean, like he, I'm I'm a new man. I'm gonna d- take my canvas out and paint all the things. And, you know, thank you so much and. Amy is so convinced we've changed history. We're going to walk into that museum and there's going to be an entire separate wing of brand new paintings we've never seen before. And she's so excited and she runs up the stairs into the, into the room and nothing's changed. It's the same artwork, the same story. And the curator still says that Vincent took his own life. And that is another thing about mental illness it isn't a one cure thing. And there are still people, there are people every day who go through mental illness, who are shown the greatest love by everyone that cares about them. And sometimes it just has that tragic end. And for Vincent being shown so much love by these people being told that he will be known as the greatest artist that ever lived. And here is this young woman who calls him her, her favorite artist of all time to the point where he wants to marry her. And it's just, it, it still ends in tragedy. And Amy just, she, she tried and she failed and, Sometimes that happens. It just does. How many, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've had, we've seen so many great artists in modern, modern media. You know, so much love is poured upon them by their fans and their family and their adulation and awards and whatnot. And it still ends in tragedy because of mental illness. It's not a one thing is that an instant cure and it's it, it is heartbreaking well but the it, thing is is that i think that the thing a lot of people miss about this episode and i kind of wish it was a little more clear and i do like the doctor's speech about like you know just because there are bad times, it doesn't erase the good times and blah, 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 you know. Vincent had an illness. That's why it's called mental illness. Okay. And if, if Vincent had had liver disease, or, you know, heart failure or cancer <laughs> or cancer or, you know, had died of a stroke or something. 
nobody would blame him. And, or at least, you know, nobody that wasn't an asshole. Or, and nobody would think that you could just love him better. You know, like, nobody would just think that, like, being nice to him and showing him love was the cure. I mean, it helps it. It mitigates it. You know, please support people who are going through, you know, medical issues. We all need that. But it's not a cure. It's not the cure for mental illness any more than it's a cure for diabetes. You know, there are medications that can help. There are therapies that can help there, you know, and yes, emotional support from friends and family can help, but it's not a cure. In the end, Vincent succumbed to an illness. And you can't blame him for succumbing to an illness any more than you can blame somebody for having a stroke. And you can't go like, oh, if only somebody had been nicer to him. I mean, that that would be great, you know, but maybe there were medications he needed that didn't exist yet. Maybe there were therapies he needed that hadn't been, you know, thought up yet. We we don't know. But yeah, the, the point if- is, he was he was ill. And there was no cure. We are very happy we got him for as long as we did. And in the end, he succumbed to an illness. Even the doctor says that he's not that kind of doctor. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I I sent I sent you a, a video. Um. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever heard said about Vincent, which is it comes from Hannah Gadsby's special Nanette, which is on Netflix. Um, and Hannah has a uh, art history degree. In that special, they say that Somebody was talking to them about how, like, mentally ill people shouldn't take medication for their mental illness because, you know, well, if somebody like Vincent Van Gogh had taken medication, we wouldn't have the sunflowers because you need to feel, you know, all of your trauma and grief and whatever for to get good art. And Hannah talks about the fact that Vincent did go to doctors and did take medications that were available at the time. And one of the side effects of one of those medications was being able to see certain colors like yellow really intensely. And that's probably why Vincent started painting sunflowers was because they probably looked really interesting to him because he was on this medication that had this side effect. Hannah comes to the conclusion 
that we probably don't have the sunflowers because Vincent was sick. We probably have the sunflowers because Vincent was trying to get well. In this story, yeah, he, ha- he has the sunflowers because Amy likes sunflowers. Well, it's not that Amy likes sunflowers. It's that Amy is trying to be like, paint sunflowers because you're famous for painting sunflowers. It's just that Vincent doesn't know that, and Vincent yeah. thinks Amy likes sunflowers. <laughs> that And there is one that does make the, the one change in history is the famous sunflower painting that is signed Vincent now has the words for Amy. Yeah, that that was a that was a nice a nice little touch that yes. like you you did um something. you did t- you did change a little a little something in in history. You you were a bright spot in his life. As as the doctor said, we added a few more good times to his bad times. Yeah. I like that he was straight up ready to marry Amy. He wanted her to stay with him. Is like, you know, uh, are you sure you don't want to get married? Are you sure you don't want to have a bunch of redheaded kids? Those children would have been so ginger. <laughs> the ultimate ginger, as the doctor says. But she 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 does let him down, saying I, I'm not the marrying kind. Probably because again, she has there's only one man she wants to marry, and that man doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So it's like it's 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 a great moment and it's just but just the flirtation between the two actors the two characters is so is 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 beautiful like if you just watched this episode in a vacuum you would think that okay why didn't these two characters end up together in the larger storyline of the series you know why I I got to tell you this episode makes me just weep waterfalls every time I see it. Um and this episode has had such a profound effect on me that I have a couple of stories about it. <laughs> we it's our podcast it can be as long as we want it. <laughs> Strap um, in folks. Strap they, in. They all end the same way. Okay, so when I was living in Chicago, there are the um, the Art Institute in Chicago has some of Van Gogh's paintings, including uh, one of the self-portraits that is featured in this episode. And I went to the museum to, you know, go look at the artwork and I came across that painting and it struck me. Fortunately, it was a, an off day for the museum, so there was almost nobody there. And I was mostly alone in the wing. And I came across that painting, and I just sat down on a bench, and I cried for like 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and then uh, when I went to New York, uh, that is, of course, where... Starry Night is housed. And so I had to go see Starry Night. And I went and saw it and it's uh, that room is always flooded with people. And so I stood there and looked at it for a while and then I had to go find a quiet place to cry for. <laughs> and then one year at Dragon Con 
Tony Curran was there. <laughs> and um, I was walking through the autograph hall and it was kind of like there was a bunch of like really um, important stuff that a bunch of other people wanted to go to that I didn't really care about. So I took the time to go through the autograph hall. And so I caught it at an off time and he was at his table and there wasn't really anybody there. And I was like, oh, hey, this is a good time to go up and and say hi to him because he's been in so much stuff I like, you know, not just this, but like Defiance. And he's been like multiple characters in the MCU. And like, you know, I really like this guy and his work. And I was going to go up to him and just be like, oh, I really like you and your work. And I started to walk up to him. And I looked at him and all I could see was Vincent. And I burst into tears and I had to turn around and walk away before he could see me. <laughs> so I've never gotten to meet Tony Curran <laughs> because Aww. I started crying <laughs> before I even got to his table. <laughs> That's how much this episode messes with me. And like it there's this the this great moment in this episode where the three of them, Vincent, the doctor, and Amy, are just lying on the on the grass, and they're looking at the stars, and the stars turn into starry night. And uh, he's describing how he sees the world, and how reality shifts into how Vincent sees the world. And it's a great, it's a great transition, and I love it. I've always thought of that moment as the doctor using his uh abilities psychic abilities yeah because they're all holding hands mm-hmm. and vincent says see see it like i see it and i always took that as like a subtle cue that the the doctor like used his abilities to kind of just transmit what Vincent was seeing to all three of them. I mean, we've seen that time lords do have mental powers and we've seen the master use it to hypnotize people. Uh, I, I just described earlier that the doctor was trying to use his mental powers to try to keep the memory of Rory in Amy's head and ultimately failing. So yeah, it's, it's not that it's, it's not a new ability that he just pulled out of his backside. So, well, yeah. I mean, it's like in uh, in Girl in the Fireplace, you yeah. know, where where he goes to to read uh, Madame Pompadour's mind and she walks, you know, into his mind and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's it's not like it would be that that difficult. I just always thought that that's kind of what was going on there. Mm-hmm. But I do like that little peek in how he sees the world. But I always I always like that that he you know because of the way he saw the world he could see the monster like not even the doctor could see the monster he needed a machine to see the monster yeah but Vincent could see it just clear as day and I do like he he when he first brings that machine out he tests it on he tests it on on himself and then we get a printout of William Hartnell. Well, and it starts going through all the regenerations. It, it, you, we only see the first two, 
mm-hmm. before he flips away and goes like, okay, it's working, it's calibrated. But it shows Hartnell, and then it shows Troughton, and then he's like, okay, you're working, and, you know. We don't need to go through the rest. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but I do kind of like that, that that's in there. And that the the TARDIS recognizes him first as <laughs> but yeah this episode is so so good and like i it no question this is probably the best historical of the of the 11th doctor era because it just gets so much right not just not just vincent's vincent's life not just vincent's uh you know, not just his artwork, not just his lifestyle, not just his mental illness, but mental illness in general. Like, this is probably one of the best, um, the best expressions of mental illness in modern fiction, honestly, because it treats it with respect and not as a joke. Yeah, in fact, uh, Richard Curtis said that while he did put humor in this, he specifically shied away from most of the typical jokes about Vincent. Like, you notice there is never a mention of his ear. Mm. Um, which is always usually the first thing everybody says, like, oh, Van Gogh, ear, you know. Mm. And he did not want to... Uh, mention that because of course that happened during um, an episode of his mental illness. You notice that his, while he does refer to himself as mad and while the people in the village refer to him as mad, um, that is kind of just the terminology of the time. And it's not done in kind of a judgmental way from Vincent. You know, Vincent is just like, no, this is kind of just what I live with. And when the townspeople use it, it's very much like the doctor and Amy are like, okay, that's, that's wrong. You know, like, you're you're being awful, uh, which I I like. So I let's let's move on one year later, one season later, to the Doctor's Wife, written by Neil Gaiman, the only episode he's ever written, and it's been it's one of those things that he's wanted to write for Doctor Who for a long time. The BBC has wanted him to write for Doctor Who for a long time. He was supposed to write more episodes after this. It's just the timing has never been right. And it's so here we are with the doctor's wife. The beauty of the, the thing about this episode is this episode was supposed to be part of the previous season, season five that we just talked about with Vincent and the doctor. However, due to various scheduling conflicts, including with Gaiman, they had to push this, the the episode to the next season. Uh, the reason I know this 
is because of a show that we have talked about in passing before on in our Doctor Who retrospectives. That will be the children's show Blue Peter. Because uh, Blue Peter often has tie-ins to Doctor Who, and especially with the new series, has had a contest with children. You know, design something, and it, if you win the contest, it'll be in the show. This is where we get the Absorbaloff from. And I'll let you absorb that. Ha-ha. The Absorbaloff was a, a monster that came from a Blue Peter contest. The TARDIS console that the Doctor makes in this episode comes from a Blue Peter contest. Little and where they would ask kids to design their own TARDIS room, and if you won, that TARDIS room will be featured in the show. And it was supposed to be featured in the previous year, but because of various scheduling conflicts, they had to push the episode back a year or forward a year, and and uh, so the the kid did not get the chance to see the the TARDIS console room that they designed until a year after the fact. Uh, which almost kind of ruined one of the scenes in the movie in the in the episode because in the episode we see the ninth slash tenth Doctor console room that. When they f- moved to when they moved studios between the filming of the tenth Doctor and the filming of the eleventh Doctor, they took apart that set and they put it in the Doctor Who Experience in the mu- in one of the museums in 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 um and I believe I believe it, they actually did it in 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 Wales. If I'm wrong, somebody tell me. So they were kind of it was a toss up of whether the set would even be available for them in any capacity for that scene. Whether it would still be in the original studio that they just used or whether it will be part of the Doctor Who experience. They did not know. They didn't even know that the Doctor Who experience would still be active when they went to film this. When they would, when it came time to film this, luckily it was, and it would be until uh, sometime in the twelfth Doctor era, if I'm, if I'm, if my timeline is right. So they actually go went to the Doctor Who experience to film that's the the scene with the uh, with the old console room. So I, I did I did like that. So there is your little bit of a backstory on some of the production of the Doctor's Wife. So what is this episode about? So Rory's back. I told you he, I told you, you know, he got better and he's alive again. <laughs> I got better. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, one, one good old universe reset and you know, you're, you're, you're good to go. So the point of this episode is that the doctor receives a message from a time Lord called the Corsair. To a a, a a a a a call for help. This is a nice little throwback. Again, if you're not really into the classic series, the really really old classic series, you're probably not going to get the reference. The box 
that the doctor receives his message in is a reference to the second doctor story, The War Games. So The War Games was a 10-episode storyline where the doctor and Jamie and Zoe and end up on a world where all armies, uh, all of Earth's armies are there from all over history. The doctor realizes this is a bigger problem than he can solve. And he makes this little box sending a message to the Time Lords to help him fix the situation. And of course, it results in him being regenerating into the third doctor. Good story if you can stand a 10 episode storyline. So it's a nice throwback to have the doctor received one of these boxes from another Time Lord, a Time Lord that he supposedly had known long ago and maybe have dated. Because this is the first instance in dialogue that we get of a Time Lord being able to change genders during regeneration. That the do- that uh, he says that the Corsair was mostly most of his regenerations that the 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 Corsair was a man, but was occasionally a woman, and she was a bad girl. And the way Matt Smith delivers the line implies, oh, those two were a thing. I wonder where she kept that tattoo. You your guess is as good as mine. But I do like that, you know, again, it's this and and that is another thing that's kind of upset. I mean, we've talked about this before. How there is a section of the Doctor Who fandom that does not like the idea of the Doctor being a romantic character, a, a, a sexual character. They want their asexual Doctor, especially this version of the Doctor, especially the previous season seeming to have no interest in amy or anyone suddenly saying oh she was a bad girl we had some times let me tell you but you know as we've explained in 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 our nice doctor episode the doctor like captain america you fill in the rest of that phrase yeah so they explained that the Corsair is that the message came from outside the universe. And that's where they need to go. They need to go outside of the known universe into another universe to find the Corsair. I going outside the known universe into another universe to find somebody. I feel I just saw that somewhere. Yeah. Feel like where have I seen that before? Recently. Oh, well. But it turns out to be a trap by a asteroid with a conscience known as House. Michael Sheen! Yeah. <laughs> and he is... The interesting thing is... Okay, let's just point this out. This episode has Michael Sheen in it. And when Neil Gaiman wrote it, Matt Smith had not been cast yet. So Neil... Gaiman wrote this episode with David Tennant's doctor in mind. So already this is good omens. I mean, this is not the first time Michael Sheen has played a Doctor Who villain. Indeed. But Matt Smith does do, does, um, does his, I mean, he puts his own spin on, on this dialogue to make it his own doctor rather than just copying 
David Tennant's mannerisms or, or vocal inflections. Which implies that this was written possibly with Donna Noble in mind and not Amy Pond. That that would be interesting. The thing is, is that even after uh, they knew it was going to be Matt Smith's doctor, with it being the previous season, Rory wasn't there at the time. He'd so already this, be dead, yeah. This needed some rewrites when they pushed it into the following season. Because Neil had to go back and rewrite it again because he had to add Rory into the the story at that point, too. And what they end up doing with those, what he ends up doing with these two characters in the story is very interesting. And we would see this more, uh, not only with the, with classic Doctor Who, but with future Doctor Who. It's so again, we see that we would see this a few like a year later with, I believe with Clara and the, and the 11th doctor that the TARDIS has this ability to alter time within itself or herself. The TARDIS is female. Like old girl. Wasn't just a nickname. The, the TARDIS actually refers to other TARDISes as her sisters. Yeah. So how says kidnap has sent out these fake distress calls to lower time Lords to itself to just eat eat the TARDIS, eat their TARDISes, and use Time Lords and whatever else as spare parts for the inhabitants, the the four inhabitants of this asteroid, uh auntie, uncle, nephew, and and Idris. So speaking of good omens uh we've uh auntie here was uh in good omens because auntie is one of the um demons dagon Mm. lord of flies Mm. in good omens And um, I've got to give, like, the most amazing shout-out to Sir Ann Jones, who plays Idris, because she starred in one of my favorite TV series recently, which sadly has been canceled, and it is such a shame. Uh, but go look up Gentleman Jack if you've never seen it. Um, it's a historical about a real life woman, uh, Ann Lister, who was sort of like an out lesbian in the, um, 1800s in England who like had a wife and everything. Abby, it's it's very fascinating, and it's based on the real woman's diaries, and she plays the the main character, and it's absolutely incredible. Anyway, love her, and she's so good in this as well as Idris. Mm-hmm. We don't really know Idris very long, because by the end of the cold open, Idris is technically dead. Her soul is is wiped from her body by nephew. 
and her body is inhabited by the TARDIS. Yeah, that's true. Nephew, an Ood. We haven't talked about the Ood yet. And there's not much to talk about with the Ood here. Uh, there are psychic creatures. They talk through these little devices inserted into their into their mouths. But yeah, the, we, we, we have skipped over I mean, the Ood and the Ood being one of the, the most known yeah, one of the you know one of the most known monsters of the of the new who new who era, not exactly you know, weeping angels or even the Jadoon level, but you know, they're not monsters. They're just creatures, I know, but you know, they're not monsters, but they're you know classified as Doctor Who monsters, alien creatures. They're they're normally peaceful creatures, but the idea that that house can take over their minds at any time and have them do whatever they want, whatever uh, house wants to do is, is very interesting. How, how auntie uncle and, and nephew just completely go limp as house speaks through them. I so find how- it very interesting that we have auntie, uncle, nephew, and then Idris. Not niece. Yeah, not niece or, you know, daughter or daughter or nothing. Idris. Very, very interesting. So House's whole plan is that, you know, he like I said, he he sends out fake distress calls, brings in Time Lords to devour their TARDIS energy and to uh, use them for spare parts. But But the doctor says that he is the last of the Time Lords and this is the last TARDIS. So House has decided that he's going to escape using the the now empty TARDIS and get out of there. So what is the reason for putting the TARDIS soul, I'll, I'll call it that, the TARDIS's soul into a living body? If, if House didn't know that that was the last TARDIS. Is this just something that House does in general? Well, yeah, she she says that he removes the matrix and then he feeds off the um, Arctron energy. So this is the normal way hmm. that he does it. But the thing is, is that as far as I can tell, once he decides to make his escape, if the the TARDIS matrix was still inside the TARDIS, she would fight him. You know, the doctor can't get the TARDIS to go exactly where he wants it because the TARDIS is, you know, taking him where he needs to go instead of where he wants to go. I love that conversation. Oh yeah. Such a great conversation. Neil Gaiman is a genius. That's why house removes the, the matrix. And puts it in a living vessel. Because then the soul, for lack of a better word, is gone. And he can feed off of the leftover energy. And this is not the first time it's been implied that the TARDIS is alive. This is go this goes back all the way to the first doctor that the doc that the TARDIS can think for itself. At the at the time we didn't know the the 
the preferred gender of the TARDIS. You know, the doctor, the TARDIS can think for itself, can pretty, and it's, it was a fan theory for a long time that the doctor really isn't really doing anything when he's pushing these dials and buttons and the TARDIS just goes wherever the TARDIS wants to go. This episode actually solidifying that theory. And, you know, the, the, the many doctors has referred to the, to the TARDIS as old girl. So it's like the doctor being addressed as female is not a new thing either. The doctor referring to the TARDIS as sexy. Oh, that's all Matt Smith. Only when we're alone. <laughs> we are alone. <laughs> I, 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 lo- I like that line. When this episode was announced and it was going, you know, there's going to be an episode this season called The Doctor's Wife. Like, there were so many ideas of what this was going to mean. And, Everybody you know, thought it was going to be River. It was going to yeah. be a River song episode. Yeah. And to find out that it's the TARDIS, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> well, there were there were supposed to be... There were different names for the, the episode. Um, it was originally supposed to be called House of Nothing. And then it was changed to bigger on the inside, but then everybody was like, well, if we call it bigger on the inside, people are going to figure out right away that she's the TARDIS. So they changed it to the doctor's wife. Which makes sense. It's the only one, the only being that has been with the doctor from the beginning. The constant companion where when everybody else leaves, the TARDIS stays. It it makes sense. It, it makes sense when you really put everything, the entire series together. That this would be the doctor's wife and the fact that the TARDIS is now in the body of a woman. The, the you know, the the first thing the TARDIS does is kiss the doctor. I kind of wonder how long she's wanted to do that. This episode contains one of my favorite lines in Doctor Who history, mm-hmm. which is when the TARDIS says, I like biting. It's like kissing. Only there's a winner. <laughs> I I just I love that line so much. Again, Neil Gaiman is a genius. <laughs> and yeah, it's just. The TARDIS also trying to figure out how human beings move and work and talk because the TARDIS is a multidimensional being that exists in all of space and time at the same time. So she often says things backwards, says things wrong, saying things that they don't need to know now, but we'll know in the future. This is where we get Petrichor for the first time, mm-hmm. which will become, of course, the big thing for. Amy, mm-hmm. Petrichor for the girl who's tired of waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we uh, the phrase the only the only water in the forest is the river. Yeah, which will, which will become so much, which will get so much more meaning in the episodes to come. I I like the the little hints at the future there. Mm-hmm. The idea of finally doing an episode about the TARDIS and, like, what's the perspective of the TARDIS, you know? 
it's kind of interesting that nobody really bothered to do that until this point. Again, there's some extended media, yes. Have to throw that out because people will say otherwise. But for the television series, to personify the TARDIS, to have the TARDIS tell her side of the story is a very unique one. You know, you you push my doors when it's when it says pull. You you know you do all you you do all of these things and you bring home strays. I do like that. That's how the TARDIS views all of the Doctor's companions. You bring home strays. Well, she's not wrong. Yeah. But you know, it's it it. For her to finally have this conversation, a conversation she's always wanted with her thief, her doctor, her beautiful idiot. I just, you know, like, like, like the way she talks about him to him, you can tell that she does have these affection feelings for him. And I don't know necessarily romantic feelings, but it's. The, the, you know, like it's been said multiple times in multiple formats that the doctor and the TARDIS have this symbiotic relationship with each other to kind of have that personified as two actors acting off each other. Finally, you know, is is, is great to have that in the series. But what gets me one of my favorite parts of this episode is when the doctor figures out what's going on. When he figures out houses that the house has been sending these fake, these fake distress calls where she's where he sees these this entire cabinet full of cubes, each one with a different calling out with a different voice of a different Time Lord that we will never know who they are. And this look, this the look of hope turning into the look of anger. You gave me hope and you took it away from me. But by that point, it's too late. By that point, House has already infected the TARDIS. But the moments he get, you know, it's 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 great acting on Matt Smith. Yeah, you truly do feel for the doctor in that moment. Especially, you know, when Amy even says, you know, hey, I thought you said you got rid of all of the Time Lords. How How is the Corsair going to react when you tell him that, oh, I just destroyed all of our people. Oh, he'll understand. It's fine. This also has another one of the, the great Doctor Who lines, you know. Like, fear me, I've killed Time Lords. And he's like, fear me, I've killed them all. Yeah, I, I love and I just love his the look on Matt Smith's face, his posture, his delivery. It's just so good. It's so good. Matt Smith is so good at the death the doctor. But you know the 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 the, the conversations that that all of us have is like even when when the TARDIS it, in Idris's body trying to convince the doctor of who she is. You're not the TARDIS. You're a bitey mad lady. I mean, that does kind of sound like the TARDIS to me. Mm. It's But these two actors having this great chemistry with each other and the fact that the, you know, like this is the only time in the series that these two actors will interact like this, not just the characters, but the actors themselves having this great chemistry with each other. 
it's almost like I want to see these two and other things together. I mean, yeah. Sarah Ann Jones is great, and I would watch her in anything. Mm-hmm. I I do like when they're trying to su- to contact Amy and Rory. Tar- the TARDIS goes, which one's Amy? Is it the pretty one? And then she goes to Rory. Yeah. Hello, pretty. The the TARDIS thinks Rory is pretty. Another instance of of someone thinking one of the male characters is pretty. Because we just talked about this last month with with the Tenth Doctor, Pretty yeah. Boy. Oh, I'm but, Pretty Boy, yeah. <laughs> but the, I guess you can call it the B plot of this is just Amy and Rory in the TARDIS, going through all of these rooms. Like you said, this was not this was not the intent because. Rory was supposed to be dead when this episode was supposed to be originally filmed. Before this, this entire thing of Amy and Rory going through the TARDIS as house is screwing with them, altering time in the TARDIS, aging Rory. They get separated for five seconds and Rory says, you've been gone for hours. And just this, this, you know, screwing with the lights, turning them off for Amy, but they're on for Rory. And the whole thing of, you know, Amy going through Rory as Rory gets older and older. Like, You've left me for 2000 years and house and house beats me and house abuses me. And how could you let this happen to me? Like that whole thing is just. You know, mind screwing with them. And I don't I almost like it more because it shows that if the TARDIS wanted to, it can screw with you so much. And the fact that the TARDIS doesn't is amazing. I mean, imagine if something that really wanted to do harm got in there and the TARDIS was just like, (laughs) hold my beer, you know? Mm-hmm. That would be a fun episode. And like I said, they they do end up in the ninth slash tenth Doctor uh, console room, which was filmed at the Doctor Who experience. And I I I do like seeing that old. And it's a nice reference to again an older series, uh, the Fourth Doctor. At one point, him and Sarah Jane find the secondary control room of the TARDIS and they actually stay there for a bit and uh for for traveling with Leela also uses that secondary control room so it's it's a nice callback to show that the TARDIS has multiple control rooms and that the doc and that the TARDIS has categorized and kept every single TARDIS console room even ones that the, that that the doctor hasn't used yet So somewhere in this TARDIS, we see potentially the 12th Doctor's interior, the 13th Doctor's interior. We have yet, again, as of this recording, we don't know what the 14th or the 15th Doctor's interiors look like. So it's probably there, too. Yeah, and of course we get the cloister bell showing up again. Yeah. When they finally make it to the to the back into the TARDIS and. Idris' body finally succumbs. 
we don't we never we don't see the fight because again these are two beings that do not have physical forms but the sound of the TARDIS and House fighting each other through the console is nice voice acting and probably the best that you could do again of two beings that have no physical form and it's mostly told through Matt Smith's own body language and facial expressions that, you know, he's excited that the TARDIS is finally back where she belongs in the console in driving the TARDIS. But that look of sadness in him, as he says, finish her off, finish him off, old girl. Because he knows what that means. Yeah. And that last minute, that last moment with Idris as the TARDIS, uh, as the TARDIS uh, brings Idris back to life for just that moment to say the one thing she's always wanted to say to the doctor. And I love that the one thing she's always wanted to say to the doctor, the big word she's always wanted to say to the doctor, the important word is simply hello. That all of these years, as she says, 700 years of travel, she's not, she's only wanted to say hello to him. And I do like the implication that it was the TARDIS that stole the doctor, not the doctor that stole the TARDIS. The TARDIS left herself unlocked just so the doctor could find her and take her because she, too, wanted to see all of time and space. It wasn't just him. And I said, these two characters for in all all media has it's been established that these two have this symbiotic real symbiotic relationship. Kindred spirits, if you will, as they just both wanted to see the universe and they got to and they continue to and then they continue to to this very day. I like when she when he says I borrowed you and she says no borrowing suggests returning and why would I ever return you? I that again that is that is that is love if I've ever heard it. Maybe it's me. I mean I I just adore that that line. The thing is though is that I don't know if you were if you watched it with the captions. I did not. Okay. I was watching, um, as of this recording, they have not moved the episodes over to Disney Plus yet. Um, so I watched it on its current home on HBO Max. And in the captions on HBO Max, she says... You know, I I wanted to, I've I've been looking for a, a word so big and so sad alive. Oh, I just remembered what I wanted to tell you. Hello. And as she fades out, there's a bit of sound, and it's very difficult to to hear. And if you're not watching with the captions on, it's just kind of muffled. And it's it just kind of sound. Mm-hmm. 
But according to the official captions that are currently on HBO Max, as she fades out, the TARDIS says, I love you. I do not know if that's officially canonical, but that is what is contained in the closed captioning currently up on HBO Max. I believe it. I mean, I, I, I want to believe. Doesn't necessarily mean a romantic relationship. You can love a friend. You can love a family member. I, But I truly believe that the TARDIS loves the Doctor. Well, I mean, you can take that in whatever way you want, but I I think it's it's beautiful. We've seen we there. We've seen instances of the TARDIS being insanely jealous of certain companions, especially with Clara. Like sometimes the TARDIS will just not open for certain people. The TARDIS will kick people out. Oh, I do love that when the doctor is trying to open the the TARDIS to save uh, Amy and Rory as House is taking it away. He snaps uh, his fingers. <laughs> he, he yeah he he uses the sonic screwdriver to try to open it. He tries to get to the the door to open it with the key and you know all that kind of stuff. And then he tries to snap his fingers and it none of it works. I love that callback. Cause she's not in there. She would have. She would have let him in with anything, but because she's not in the TARDIS, she's not in the console, House is. House isn't going to let him in. Yeah, I, I do. I do love that. It's just such a good thing. But I, and, and there's this there's that great moment towards the end of the episode where Amy is looking at the doctor fixing up the TARDIS, putting this firewall around her. So what whatever happened. So what happened before doesn't happen again. He looks at her. Uh, she looks at him and says, "It's always going to be you two, isn't it? Long after we're gone and the next is gone, it's just going to be you two." And it's, yeah, that's how it is. That's how it always is. It's always going to be the Doctor and the TARDIS. People come, pe- companions go, companions leave and come and go, and at the end of it all, it's going to be the Doctor and the TARDIS. And it's, it's, you know, take that however you want. I take it as a very, you know, these two will always be together no matter what. It's good to have a friend. Yeah. I mean, most of the doctor's friends tried to kill him. So at least, at least this one won't. It's, it's a beautiful episode. Again, Neil Gaiman wrote, uh, wrote a great episode and it's, it is, you know, again, this and Vincent and the Doctor being two of the most popular episodes of the 11th Doctor's run is understandable. You can, I mean, I would put Vincent and the Doctor higher than this, but from a perspective of longtime viewers finally getting this moment, a moment that if you're only watching the TV show, you're probably never, never got before and never will get again of the doctor and the TARDIS having this conversation and getting essentially a story from the TARDIS's point of view. Now, could they do another story like this from the TARDIS's point of view without dialogue? Possible. 
I don't think they're going to do it, but it would take a very creative writer to do a story from the TARDIS's point of view without the TARDIS making any kind of uh, vocalization. Yeah, but I'm I'm glad we at least got this one. I'm not sure how well it would work again, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm glad we got the one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So yeah, that I think that's all we can talk about about the Eleventh Doctor for right now. Of course, the, um, Amy and Rory would stick around for the to, until the next season before they would end up leaving and. We would get new companion Clara Oswald. Your mileage on Clara Oswald may vary. That's a discussion for a different time. And she would stick around with to see the Doctor regenerate into the Twelfth Doctor, Peter Capaldi. And that's where we will put it on put the pin in that for right now. And we will talk more about Doctor Who next month because next month will actually be the 60th anniversary. And programming notes. We're going to say it right now. All of November is going to be dedicated to Doctor Who. We are going to get through the remaining Doctors and and all in one month. We're going to try to make that happen. Granted, there's not many left, but we're going to make it happen. So stay tuned next month for an entire Doctor Who month. But for now, we are going to put the TARDIS away and move on to next week. We are going to get back into the spooky season. We are going to, since we, years ago, we talked about the Alien franchise. It's time to get into its sister franchise, The Predator. So next week, we are going to be talking about the original 1987 The Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Next week's episode will not be for kids. So if you're one of our listeners that like to listen with the little ones, you might want to skip next week's episode. Yep. It's going to be a proper spooky episode, so. Yeah, so uh, if if you're up for it, come back next week for The Predator, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversations on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Rewatching the Magic. We are on the X, formerly known as Twitter, at Rewatch the Magic. And new episodes are available every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at aclu.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area.